It's good to be back with you this week. Uh, COVID decided to creep as slowly as possible through uh, our entire family. And so uh, this weekend is like the first time since the new year that we've all been able to like leave our house, which is nice. Um, but I feel like we're still learning how to like socialize and be around other human beings a little bit. Uh, so be patient with me today. Thank you to those of you who texted or called, those of you that were praying for us. Uh, fortunately, I mean, it, it was never more than what felt like a cold, so we were very fortunate in that way. It's good to be back with you. I know uh, Father Chris, I owe him a, a debt of gratitude for filling in a couple times this month, and uh, I was always with you online. So yeah, it's good to be back. And my wife's here. Hi, wife. Yeah. She doesn't come very often either. Um, some of you don't even know I'm married. Uh, it's that beautiful woman in the white on the front row over here. I got an email this week uh, from somebody I don't know. Um, if he's here today, we should talk after service, but I've never met this person. I wouldn't assume that they would actually be at Sanctuary based on... Uh, the email I got. But basically, this person just copy and pasted what is like the welcome statement on Sanctuary's website. And if you're not familiar, it says that Sanctuary is a gathering of people seeking to encounter God as we embrace the historic church's common life and practice. Nothing crazy there. I think it actually paints a pretty solid picture of what we're trying to do. Here at Sanctuary, we're trying to encounter God, we're seeking the historic church's common life and practice together, and we're just going to see what happens, right? So they copy and pasted this to me, they, they, they added this line at the end of the email, if this were true, <laughs> you would be part of the fullness of the church, instead you have embraced heretical Anglican worship. <laughs> Come home to Rome, he said. <laughs> Come home to Rome. It's a great slogan if any churches are out there looking. Um, I say all of that. I tell this story because I think, I don't mean to shame this person. I don't think ill of this person. I, I do think it says something about the way that we think about each other. And it, it's, again, the perfect picture of what I think Jesus is getting at in today's gospel. If uh, you've been around the church for very long, you've probably heard this text where Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, teaching in the synagogue, and he gets ran out of the temple, right? And these people are angry, they're in a rage, and they intend to hurl him off the cliff and to kill him. And if you're anything like me, the way that I was taught this text, or the way that it was always given to, to me, was, see, this is what people are going to do to you if you preach the gospel, like, it, it puts you directly in the place of Jesus, right? To say, as you do this, you go through life, you will have trouble, and people are going to hate you for the gospel. This is how this text was presented to me. There was never any way of approaching this text that assumed we might be the people who get ticked off at Jesus, that we might be the people who have an issue with the kind of teaching that Jesus is offering to us in such a way that we might want to kill Jesus too. But I think that's more true to the heart 
of what this text is, is meant to do for us. We're supposed to see ourselves as people to whom the gospel has come, and we've not really had ears to hear. We haven't really been able to understand what it is Jesus is asking of us, and so our response is to get angry and to resist it. When we take a closer look at this story, we're reminded that the people that Jesus was talking to were first century Jews. These were people who were on the lookout. They were on the hunt for a Messiah, somebody that was going to come and save them, somebody who was going to come and to rescue them. And here, Jesus is reading from the prophet Isaiah. This is what Jesus has just said to them, just read to them, announcing that God has anointed him to bring good news to the poor that God has anointed him to come and to proclaim release to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to bring healing, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this, Jesus is telling them, God has anointed him specifically to do this in the world. And they would be hearing this as good news. Again, these are people who are on the lookout, on the hunt for a Messiah. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll he sits down, and there's this kind of buzz in the room, right? That people are speaking well of him, the text tells us. The text says that they're applauding him, that they're great, the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth, that they can't believe it. And then it's as if Jesus knows what everyone in the room is thinking, and so he tells them, ah, you may think this is going to go one way, <laughs> but I promise you it's going to get worse <laughs> from here on out. And then Jesus tells them, doubtless you will say to me, doctor, cure yourself. Doctor, cure yourself, which is a way of saying, prove your worth as a physician. If this really is true, if you are the one who is anointed to come and do the liberating and the healing and the setting people free, to bring in and usher in the year of our Lord's favor, prove it, right? You're talking a big game, Jesus. And so he says, doubtless you'll say to me, doctor, cure yourself. But another way we could also read this phrase is, heal your own people rather than those people in Capernaum. We've heard these stories of what you've been doing in this other place for these other people, those people who are outsiders, and they're saying, bring all of that home. Remember, he's standing in the synagogue where? He's in Nazareth. This is Hometown crowd for Jesus. And it's here that Jesus dispels any doubt about what he's here to do, what he's going to do in this place. And it's here that Jesus reminds them of these two stories of Israel's own prophets, the story of Elijah and the story of Elisha. And if you're not familiar, essentially both of these stories are about a time when one of Israel's prophets was called to minister to and to heal someone outside of the people of Israel. Someone who was not part of this tribe, someone who is not part of these people that God has called to be his own. And these aren't just outsiders by national identity. I mean, that, that's fundamentally true. These are people who exist outside of the tribe of Israel. But these were people who were outsiders in every way, in every level. These were widows. These were people who were sick. They didn't come from the right families. They didn't worship the right gods. They didn't think the right kind of thoughts. And they didn't believe the right kind of beliefs. 
So when Jesus is talking about bringing good news and proclaiming release and freedom and liberation and healing and favor, he tells those who are listening to him, those in the synagogue, all of this is true, but it's not coming for you. (laughs) It's not, at least not in the way that you think it is. It's coming for those that you've decided aren't one of you is actually what Jesus tells them. Jesus reminds them that God worked through the prophets to work forgiveness, to work grace, and to work healing into people's lives, not because they deserved it and not because they earned it, not because they were the right people from the right places, but they were actually the wrong people from the wrong places. And even so, God works mercy into their lives. God works grace into their lives. God shows up and is present to them, to the people that he has no business granting mercy or grace or healing or forgiveness. These are the stories that Jesus uses to preach to the people in his hometown. And the text tells us, when they heard this, all in the synagogue are filled with rage. The question that we should be asking ourselves, the question that we're confronted with today, those of us who aren't first century Jews, how do we hear this lesson from Jesus? How do we hear it today? When we hear about God doing for others what we want God to do for us, what wells up in us? What kind of feelings and emotions take shape inside of us when it turns out that God is doing for others all of the things you're longing God to do for you? Because if we're honest, we have a certain kind of idea, a certain kind of hope or assumption about the certain kinds of things God will do for a certain kind of people. But Jesus is telling us, don't trust those instincts. Don't trust those expectations or those assumptions that God only works in certain people's lives who look a certain way or think a certain way, who live a certain way. Because as soon as you think you've got God nailed down and you think yourself good enough or you think yourself righteous enough or humble enough to earn what you want God to do for you, then what God wants to do for you stops being grace at all. It becomes something that we deserve, something that we earn, something that we've won for ourselves. This is what the prophet Jeremiah reminds us today, that whatever we think or expect God is going to do, whatever we think God's activity in our lives looks like, it almost certainly isn't going to be that. Our Old Testament text for today is Jeremiah 1. And it tells us about Jeremiah's calling and commission, this very beginning of Jeremiah's life. And it tells us exactly what God has sent him out into the world to do, the message that God has given Jeremiah to take out into the world. And at the end of this commission, it says that God has put these words in Jeremiah's mouth, that the work that God is going to do, is listen to this, is to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy and overthrow, and then to build and to plant. That what God is actually about in the world is way more destructive and disruptive in our lives than we really want it to be. 
And if you're anything like me, when I think about God's work and God's activity in the world and in my life, I almost exclusively want the building and the planting. That the building and the planting, those are markers for me that I know God is present, that I know God is working in my life, that I know God's activity is being realized because there's the building and there's the planting. This is a really fun season for sanctuary right now. That after what might feel like, well, it is uh, in reality, a long time of the plucking up and the pulling down and the overthrowing, (laughs) all of the kind of disruptive work that's been taking place here at Sanctuary, it finally feels like we are in a season of building and planting. And that's really fun. And that's really exciting. But again, it's only been made possible by years Years worth of work of all of this other disruptive kind of activity. So if you've been here for a while, you know that doing all of the plucking and pulling down and destroying and overthrowing that it takes to get to the building and planting is not always fun. It's work and it requires patience and it requires humility And when we think that this is really the marker of God's presence in our lives, the building and the planting, then what we see is that God is really with us. When we think that God is really with us, that it only looks like increase, that it only looks like favor, that it only looks like blessing and growth and prosperity and all of those things that we've associated with God's presence in our lives. But Jeremiah reminds us, that actually two-thirds of God's work in our lives is destructive and disruptive. It isn't the fun stuff like the building and the planting. It's the plucking up and the pulling down and the destroying and the overthrowing. And this is maybe the greatest challenge for us, not just as a church community, but as Christians in America that one of the greatest challenges that we face is that we have all spent the majority of our lives being formed and discipled into a rival religion. We've all spent most of our lives being formed into disciples who have certain kinds of allegiances to a place. We know this as nationalism, and it sneaks into our lives in all kinds of unassuming ways. And so the work that we have to do as the church is not to catechize people, is not to teach people a faith that they are foreign to. It's actually to reteach people and to recatechize people into learning how to participate in this faith faithfully with our allegiances placed in the right places and our hopes set on the right kinds of things and our openness being made available to the right kinds of things and people. It turns out that when we leave room for God's plucking and pulling and destroying and overthrowing, oftentimes what's left is simply a healthy skepticism of ourselves. And that's needed That's necessary. This kind of posture that says, I hope this is true. (laughs) Sometimes that's the best that we get. 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of our other texts for today, talks about seeing through a glass dimly. 
And Paul says, that's the best that it gets sometimes. And so we ought to, as we learn to submit ourselves to God's destructive work in our lives, we ought to open ourselves up to the kind of humility that says, I don't know as much as I think I know. <laughs> I don't, I'm not quite as certain about the things that I, I might need to be certain about. And that's okay, because it leads us to be open-handed with one another. It, it lends itself to a humility toward one another that Jesus is inviting us into. This means that I'm free to not send those emails to my Christian brothers and sisters about coming home to my tribe, about coming back into my tradition, and instead be curious about how is the Spirit active and at work in other people's lives. The good news for you and for me is that Jesus the Gospels tell us he isn't all that freaked out by people who don't get it right all the time. He's not scandalized by the people that seem to mess things up pretty regularly. Jesus, the Gospels show us, he only really gets upset with the people who are so sure that they're right all the time. With the people who insist on seeing themselves as the insiders. These are the people that Jesus doesn't seem to have a whole lot of tolerance for. Jesus isn't freaked out by the sinners. He's freaked out by the people who are so convinced they're not sinners. By reminding this hometown crowd in the synagogue about Elijah and Elisha and the way that God has chosen to work in the world, Jesus is announcing this radical solidarity with not just the people of Israel, but with everyone even those who would be considered Israel's enemies, the people who are the outsiders, who don't belong, who haven't thought the right thoughts or believe the right things. Richard Rohr, I think it's helpful in this way. He says this, Jesus refuses the very starting point of historic religions. He refuses to divide the world into the pure and the impure, much to the chagrin of almost everybody, then and now. For Jesus, there are no postures, group memberships, behaviors, prayer rituals, dietary rules, asceticism, or social awareness that of themselves transform us or make us enlightened, saved, or superior. There are no contaminating elements or people to expel or exclude. For Jesus, everything and everyone belongs. Nothing needs to be expelled or excluded, but some do need to be rebuked for insisting on expelling and excluding. Because for Jesus, it's not a matter of protecting anything. God doesn't need us to protect God. God does a pretty good job of that on his own. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of openness. Our New Testament text today, as I already mentioned, is one that's familiar to most of us, this 1 Corinthians 13 passage. It's talking about this gift of love. For most of us, we hear this pop up at weddings. You know, it's chock full of love. What is love? How do we love? And we forget sometimes that Paul is writing this to a community of people. Like Paul didn't imagine, you know, your rustic wedding uh, 
Like, he, he just didn't have that in mind when he's writing 1 Corinthians, you know? And so he's writing to a community. He's writing about unity in the body. He's writing about how we care for one another, how we use the gifts that God has given to us, the good gifts God has given. And Paul's been hammering, hammering out all of these ideas. He's been talking about Christian practice on wisdom. He's been talking about personality cults. He's been talking about sex and marriage, compromising with paganism. And then he sets in on this poetic reality of love. And it's here where Paul lists all of these good gifts, these good deeds, these good actions, all of these outward signs of spirituality. He talks about speaking in tongues. He talks about having a prophetic voice. He talks about gifts of knowledge, about giving away all of our possessions. And Paul says, if I do all of this, but I don't have love, I have nothing. Now, I think at first glance, it seems like what Paul is warning us of is the danger of doing all of these things, even these good things, but just not doing them lovingly, right? That seems to be what Paul is suggesting, that, oh, we should have gifts of prophecy and gifts of wisdom, that we should be willing to give away our possessions, this kind of uber generosity, but just make sure you do it lovingly. But I don't think that's really what Paul's after. I think what Paul's actually suggesting is that oftentimes we embrace these outward signs, these outward spiritual signs, and we accept them as a kind of counterfeit for actually loving people. That we get so caught up in spiritual talk, we get so caught up in being prophetic about uber generosity, but we forget that the signs of loving others doesn't equate to actually loving other people. <laughs> to care, to love for one another means to actually take responsibility for one another and for one another's care. To take responsibility for one another's well-being is what Paul is after. John Chrysostom, he's a Church father from the 5th century, I'm sure you all celebrated his feast day this week. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Um, <laughs> he insisted, again, this is the 5th century, and, he, and Chrysostom was somebody who, who he stood against so much of the way that our institutions had been twisted. And he was quoted saying, he wrote, if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the chalice. That for us to ignore caring for one another, taking responsibility for one another's well-being, actually caring and loving for the least of these, if those are the people that Christ has promised to identify himself with, why would we ever imagine we can find Christ in the cup? You ignore the people and the places that Jesus promises to be, why would you ever expect him to be found anywhere else? Caring for one another, expressing a radical openness to one another. It isn't just a nice tag-on to the real work of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Last night I ran into this article from 1978. It was written by... His name is Dr. Richard Mao, and he was a white Presbyterian minister. 
And his church had, hold on. His church had just, (laughs) his church had just recently baptized for the very first time a black child whose name was Daryl. And Mao acknowledges that for him to ask his congregation, remember in our baptismal covenant, we have this moment where we look at one another, we look at the congregation, and we ask this question. They did it then, we do this now. Do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive this child in love, pray for him, help care for his instruction in the faith, and encourage and sustain him in the fellowship of believers? And he also acknowledged that for his congregation to respond as we all respond, We do, God helping us. He realized that this question and answer of the people of God has far-reaching implications, not just for his congregation, he says, but for their traditionally white denomination and for the entire Church of Christ. And so he writes this article explaining this whole experience of baptizing the first black child in their church. And he writes this, To love Daryl will require that we try to look at the world from his point of view, to make his hopes and fears our very own, to assume an obligation for his Christian instruction and nurture is to commit ourselves to attempting to understand what the gospel means for him with his tradition and history. It means from here on in, we will have to keep Daryl in mind when we plan our sermons, when we write our liturgies, when we plot our educational programs. All of this will involve us in change, in patterns of contextualization that are different from those which have characterized our lives of the past. He's saying this is going to take work on the part of the community. And he says, we are also going to have to pay close attention to what others are saying to and about Daryl. If American society tries to treat him like a second-class citizen, we will have to protect him on his behalf, since he is our brother and a holy nation of kings and priests. If he is ever the object of a cruel joke or a vicious slur, we will have to consider this to be an affront to the very body of Christ. If someone ever complains that he is not one of our own kind, we will have to respond with the insistence that through the blood of Jesus, we are Daryl's kind. He ends this article with this point, that this isn't, hypothetical. This isn't about nice ideas or theories about loving people, our imagined neighbors. This was real life, flesh and blood. He says, questions which we might have wished to have been weather questions have now become how questions. It is a good thing that after we say we do, we remember to add God helping us. God helping us. 
remembering that God helping us often looks like plucking up and pulling down and destroying and overthrowing. But this is the work of God that we need in our lives to constantly move us toward a deeper openness to God and to one another. When Jesus shows up, he reminds us that to love one another doesn't have anything to do with our ideas about one another, but about the care with which we treat one another. And he does so by reminding us that it starts with the people who are the least like us the people that we would be the first to assume aren't one of us. The kind of love, Dr. Mao tells us, requires a kind of thoughtfulness, attempting to understand what the gospel means for others given their traditions and given their histories and given their experiences in the world. Because if the gospel isn't good news for all, then it's not good news at all. And the reality is we all have dreams for the world that, if we're honest, are somebody else's nightmare. That we've dreamed dreams about our community and about our world and about our future without keeping the Daryls in mind as we organize our common life together. And now is the time that we need to dream dreams involving a radical solidarity, an unqualified welcome We've dreamed dreams, again, without keeping these kinds of people at the forefront of our imagination. The kinds of people that we're certain don't belong because that's precisely where God is doing the work of liberating and healing and making whole. So, as we decide, will that be the work that we're about? No matter who it associates us with or separates us from, as our bishop likes to say, will we join the crowds in driving Jesus out of the church and into the hills? Either way, God will be about God's business. Will we join him? Amen.